0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And Yahweh sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah, at the command of Yahweh, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Alnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, And carried off all the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of Yahweh, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as Yahweh had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor. Ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of Yahweh, It came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen, and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of Yahweh, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans also, and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Seraya, the chief priest, and Zephaniah the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold, and from the city. He took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city, and Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, governor. Now, when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Cariah, and Sariah, son of Tanhumath, the Netophathite, and Jaazaniah, the son of the Maakathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaltean officials. Live in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, Came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And in the thirty seventh year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived." Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 820 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. We just read 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, and that concludes 2 Kings in the Old Testament, wild stuff, and hard stuff. We'll talk about it here in just a moment, but also... As a little bit of a preview for what else we've got in store in this episode, we're going to be talking about homeschooling and DEI, DEI and homeschooling, institutional capture, and whether decline is a choice. Is decline a choice? Well, in some cases, clearly from our reading in 2 Kings, especially coming down the home stretch at the very last, finishing up the book, it would seem to me as though decline is not always a choice you make or that a country makes. Specifically, we'll be talking about whether decline is a choice for America to make at this point. And I want to just tease the thought that at a certain point, it's really not up to you anymore. It's what it is. Now, that's a sobering thought, but there is hope. And we'll talk about that too, because I don't want to be a bearer of bad news and an Eeyore and leave you with the wrong impression, because that would be the wrong impression. If it's only bad news, well, then we're not reading our Bibles right. But if we think that it's all up to us, or you can at any point avoid the consequences of sin and folly, at any point, if you just wait, until right up until the moment of the judgment, think again. Think again. Kiss the son while he's on his way, lest he become angry. That's what our posture is supposed to be. That's what our mindset is supposed to be. Don't harden your heart. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn. When you hear the call to repent, repent and take heart because all is not lost because God ultimately decides. Decline may be a choice after a fashion, humanly speaking, for us to make, but more than that, nations and empires and peoples rise and fall on God say so, and we need to remember that. But that said, we'll get into what we get into in this episode as far as our current context. Soon enough, we'll talk about all of those things I just mentioned and more besides, rest assured, after we discuss these two chapters of 2 Kings. So, about them. First, we have the figure of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim had been named Eliakim. He was one of two sons of Josiah. Probably Josiah had more sons besides, but he was one of two sons of Josiah. And the first son that the people of Judah put on the throne after the death of Josiah did not please the Pharaoh of Egypt who had come in. He had been coming against the Assyrians. Josiah came out against him. Why? It doesn't say, but he did. And the Pharaoh, it says elsewhere in the biblical text, warned him, don't come against me. I am doing your God's bidding right now. Josiah wouldn't listen. He ended up being killed in battle against the Pharaoh of Egypt. And when the people of Judah had finished burying Josiah with his fathers, with his forefathers, they installed one of his sons to be king after him. And Pharaoh, by that point, was apparently in a position of dominance over Judah and had not just stopped at killing Josiah who had come against him. But the Pharaoh said, no, not that one. I want this other of Josiah's sons, to be king instead. And while we're at it, I'm going to change his name. And so he did. And where we left off in the previous chapter, chapter 23 of 2 Kings, we see that taxes are being collected from the people of Judah and sent as tribute to Pharaoh. Here we pick up with Jehoiakim becoming servant to Pharaoh for three years. And then he rebels. He rebels against the Pharaoh And what does God do? Interestingly, it doesn't say here that the Egyptians come in. It says that bands of Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, and Ammonites are sent by God against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of Yahweh to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for all the innocent blood that he had shed. Let's pause for a moment and let's consider that the sins of Manasseh were very offensive to God. It said in the chapter, more concerned with Manasseh, that he had done more evil than all who came before him. And that he made Judah, he made the people of Judah and Jerusalem to sin with him. Tradition holds that it was Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, who ordered the prophet Isaiah to be killed after Isaiah confronted him about idolatry and the worship of all the host of heaven, all the other gods of the nations, besides just Baal and Ashtaroth, and that very much offended God, and God was not going to pardon it. As far as it related to the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, he was not going to pardon the sins of Manasseh that he made Judah to sin and that he set an example for those who would come after him to walk in. And so here we have it. We have the demise of Judah. We see that Jerusalem was filled with innocent blood, Manasseh, it would seem, or Jehoiakim. If Jehoiakim was following the example of Manasseh, you might say the sins of Manasseh are being carried forward into future generations in a kind of traditional sense, in a normalization sense. This becomes the culture of Judah and Jerusalem, filling Jerusalem with innocent blood. And God says he's not going to pardon that. Jehoiakim passes away in his time, sleeps with his fathers, as they say, being buried with them, alongside them. You can read more about him in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, we're told, but it says then, verse seven, the king of Egypt did not come against his land, again, out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt. So just like God had given Judah into the hands of, of the Egyptians in due time, and in short order, God gave the Egyptians into the hand of Babylon. But it says here that Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, He had a very short reign. Most kings, it seems to me, with my informal assessment, having read what we've read so far, most kings had rules and reigns that lasted for years. Two, three, four years, that was a short reign, which is to say we should put the American presidency having a four-year term into something of that context. Two, three, four years, that's a short reign. When you start getting down into kingship only lasting a few months, that's a very unstable situation. If every few months you have a different king, the status quo is up in the air and the powers that be do not have control. Of the situation. There's a lot of instability in Judah, and we know that because Jehoiachin reigns three months. It says he did what was evil, and it was according to all that his father had done. Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim being one of the sons of Josiah. Here we have the grandson of Josiah doing evil like his father did. He didn't reign for very long, but he was just like his father. He was doing exactly the sort of stuff his father had done. He was following his father's example. And so his rule was very short. It was cut very short in part because he was evil and in part because judgment was at hand for the people of Judah and Jerusalem more broadly. Here we're introduced in verse 10 of chapter 24 to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's his servants, Who are actually coming up to Jerusalem, besieging the city. Then Nebuchadnezzar comes up to the city while his servants are besieging it. Jehoiachin, not very long into his reign, gives himself up to Nebuchadnezzar. And what follows is a whole lot of shakeup. The king is taken prisoner and carried off to Babylon. So is all the treasure. Of the king's house and the temple. There's quite a lot that is chopped up in the way of precious metals so that it can be carried back to Babylon. Long and short of it, everything precious, everything great, all of the moderately wealthy and wealthy people, and powerful people, and intelligent people, and capable people, and strong men are carried off into Babylonian captivity, or they're killed. Some of the leading men of the city are put to death, but 10,000 captives, including craftsmen and smiths, mighty men of valors, officials, it says Old Jerusalem, but we know there's an exception, they're carried off to Babylon to make Babylon richer and more prosperous. Babylon is doing what they would typically do with a people they had conquered, plundering them and carrying off the best and the brightest to serve Babylon, to serve the Chaldeans. And oh, by the way, in case you don't know, who were the Chaldeans? There's all these references to Chaldeans here. How are they distinct from the Babylonians? Babylon was a city. The Chaldeans were a people. And so somebody from Babylon, you could say, was a Babylonian. In due time, the two terms became rather interchangeable. But the Chaldeans, according to ChatGPT, were an ancient people who lived in the southern part of Mesopotamia in what corresponds to modern-day southern Iraq. They were known mainly for their emergence in the late 10th or early 9th century BC. They became prominent in the late 7th and 6th centuries BC. They were not initially a unified nation, but they were Semitic-speaking tribes that settled in the area near the Persian Gulf, called Bit Yakin. Over time, the tribes gained power and influence in the region, especially during periods of Assyrian weakness. They are best known for their role in the downfall of the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC. In an alliance with the Medes and the Scythians, they sacked the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, leading to the eventual collapse of the Assyrian Empire. Following this, Nebuchadnezzar II, one of the most famous Chaldean rulers, established the Neo-Babylonian Empire, making Babylon the capital. So when you hear Chaldeans recognize that it's kind of like all eagles are birds, but not all birds are eagles. The Chaldeans were the birds, if you will, and Babylon is a specific city that was their capital. And so we'll talk about Neo-Babylonian or the Babylonian Empire, and you hear reference to the Chaldeans. That's the distinction. But back to the text, we see that the servants of Nebuchadnezzar put some of the leading men of Jerusalem to death. They carry a lot of people off to Babylon, and the very poor people, They leave right where they're at, right where they've been. They can tend the fields. They can take care of the vineyards. We need somebody to plow the land and make sure that it doesn't go to waste. So the very poor get to stay right where they're at. Meanwhile, the temple is, for all intents and purposes, sacked. And the palace and all of the great houses of Jerusalem are plundered and destroyed to where Not only is it just the very poor people left, but it's the modest houses. It's the houses that are really not all that impressive. Nothing to write home about. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Not even worth the energy it would take to knock it down. Now, here's a question for you. Why would you, if you're the Babylonians, if you're the Chaldeans here, why would you plunder like this and why would you destroy more than just taking off the valuables and carrying them home, chopping them up and carrying them home. Why would you destroy the big, impressive, fancy houses? Well, quite simply, for all the reasons that people build those big, fancy, impressive houses in the first place, there's an assertion of authority and power and competence that comes with a big, beautiful, well-built, expensive house. And it's that assertion that the Babylonians are contradicting when they come in and they break down that house, set it on fire, burn it to, burn it to the ground, just destroy it, lay waste. No, you're not. No, you don't. Before carrying them off to Babylon, perhaps, the sight of their best and the brightest, either being put to death or put in shackles, the effects passed down generation after generation, the big, beautiful houses that these leading people of Jerusalem would have taken so much pride in. They would see them laid waste. And so they would be thoroughly cowed. This is about asserting dominance. This is about saying, you're never going home. There is no home for you in Jerusalem, in Judah. We're carrying you off and you will submit to us moving forward. And to make you convinced that there is no point in resisting, we're going to do the equivalent of burning the ships. We're going to put you on death's ground where you either serve us and submit to us or there's nothing for you. Your only identity, your only context from here on out is going to be that you serve us. Brutal, but effective. Here we see in the last few verses of chapter 24, That the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So we see again this proclivity for a conquering foreign people to change the name of the king. And again, this is a show of dominance. This is a way of saying, we're in charge now, even to the level of changing the name of your king. If he can't stand up to us, there's no hope for the rest of you. And so just do what you're told. Submit to us. But it says Zedekiah was 21 when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name were given. Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So we see this pattern of being dominated by foreign powers, Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. And then at a certain point saying, all right, that's enough. We're tired of submitting to you. We're feeling our strength has returned. We're feeling our oats. Now might be a good time to get independent, to do our own thing, to tell you, no, I don't want to do that. No, we don't serve you anymore. We are a proud people. Yes, and that's what got you into trouble in the first place is that you were a proud people who forgot God. And so do you think (laughs) that God having resolved to punish your pride and your sin and your folly, bringing all of that to bear with regards to Babylon is going to go well? Think again. Verse 7 of chapter 25 says, They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. The Chaldeans came and besieged the city of Jerusalem again. The famine was very severe. There was no food left. They breached the walls. The Chaldeans came in. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him and scattered his army. They captured the king, brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah and passed sentence on him. He had his eyes put out, but before they put his eyes out, before they gouged his eyes out, they slaughtered his sons with him watching. Again, This is asserting dominance. This is brutal, but it's effective. Humanly speaking, this is how you take the will to rise up again in the future, ever again, out of a people, to do this sort of stuff to them. Verse 8 says, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of Yahweh, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down the rest of the people who were left in the city after breaking down the walls and destroying the houses, the people who were left, and the deserters, together with the rest of the multitude, Nabuzaradan carried into exile. The poorest, they were allowed to stay. But the rest of the people? No, you're coming with us. We're told in more detail about the chief priest and the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold, various officers, 60 men, besides being brought to the king at Riblah and struck down, put to death. And then a guy named Gedaliah is installed as governor. So apparently you're done with having a king here. We're going to give you a governor instead. You've been demoted. Over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, son of Shaphan, You'll remember Shaphan was that secretary of Josiah's who brought him and read for him the book of the law that they found in the temple during renovations. They made Gedaliah, governor, Gedaliah tries to speak with leading men and to tell them, don't be afraid, live and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. Do they listen? No. They kill him. They kill him, and... Then they flee. So, what was the point of killing him? Again, vengeance, just to show your contempt for Babylon, to throw a tantrum. They kill him and then they flee to Egypt because they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of what the Chaldeans are going to do to them for having killed the governor appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. Lastly, the last paragraph of 2 Kings, we see that Jehoiachin is released from prison. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, in the 12th month, on the 27th day, Evil-Merodach, now a different king in view here, Evil Evil-Merodach king of Babylon, in the year he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin from prison, spoke kindly to him, gave him an allowance, allowed him to eat at his table, actually placed Jehoiachin above all of the other kings who were similarly living in exile, They'd been carried off captive to Babylon. Jehoiachin, given the circumstances, given the context here, comes to something of a more peaceable conclusion at the end of 2 Kings. But that's it. That's it. The best he can hope for is having been let out of prison in Babylon, being given an allowance, being spoke kindly to, being allowed to eat with the king of Babylon. What does that mean? That means that Judah, from the very great to the very lowly, is completely at the mercy for the foreseeable future of Babylon. That's just what it is. If the Babylonians want to be kind, then the people of Judah will be treated kindly. And if the Babylonians are not feeling especially kind, then however harsh they want to be, they can be and they will be. But it seems as though Babylon is primarily interested in... Making Babylon great again. They're not just trying to destroy for the sake of destruction, but they destroy with the intent of asserting dominance. If they think they're pursuing the common good, or at least the common good of their own people, their own empire, once they think that being kind to the people of Judah serves that purpose better than being harsh, being brutal, being punitive, that's what they do. In our next episode, Lord willing, we will get into First Chronicles, which will feel a bit like we are doing a time-lapse. We're going back and <laughs> let's revisit, told differently, almost like a replay. Wait, 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 wait. Rewind. What happened? What What just happened here? <laughs> right? When we read through Chronicles, I think what you'll find is it's like a different angle, primarily interested in Judah. And in contrast to 1st and 2nd Kings, which are moral and political and very interested in the failings or the good achievements of kings of both Israel and Judah, who begat so and so, who followed after so and so, who walked in the ways of his forefather, such and such, 1st and 2nd Chronicles is different in its attention to detail. There's a different emphasis. But we'll get into that, like I said, in our next episode. For now, let's talk about our current context and let's come forward to the present, starting with a story out of Russia, of all places. John Knox over at Not The Bee posted this story February 1st of this year, titled Russian geneticist fired after claiming humans lived to 900 years before biblical flood. Here's what John Knox writes. According to state news agency RIA Novosti, Russia's Ministry of Science and Higher Education has fired the head of a prestigious genetics institute. While the report didn't specify the cause behind Alexander Kudryatsev's Termination, the Russian Orthodox Church labeled it as religious discrimination. Kudryavtsev, who led the Vavilov Institute of General Genetics within the Russian Academy of Sciences, delivered a controversial talk at a conference in 2023. During his presentation, he claimed that humans lived for approximately 900 years before the biblical flood era and attributed the shortened lifespans of modern humans to original ancestral and personal sins causing genetic diseases. Quote, at a conference in March, the academic argued that the universe made by God in the process of creation fell into decay due to the sins of people. In the deep past, people lived to be 900, he said, citing only evidence of a graph on the internet. He claimed sin was the cause of mutations in genetic diseases harming modern man. He told his shocked audience, in Minsk. Now, about this, this is easy to verify, and I would hardly <laughs> believe that the only evidence he presented was a graph. I guarantee you he had a graph that summarized the genealogies that we find in Genesis, quite simply. As John Knox, not his real name, at not to be, explains. Quoting from Genesis 5, Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. And do you see a pattern? Each of their lifespans is successively shorter than the previous. They are not all living for the same amount of time, but they're all living in the hundreds of years to be 900 plus years old. And as sin is having more of an effect on man and on creation, they're having 18 years, seven years at a time shaved off. That's significant, right? That's significant. Genesis 6-3, again, as John Knox points out rightly, tells us that God said that because of our corruptness, humans would live no more than 120 years by reason of strength. But Gudreyavtsev's claim is biblical teaching believed by billions of people all over the world for the last 5,000 years. It's what the text says. And therefore, to dispute that, to get offended about that, to say, oh, that's crazy. Get this guy out of here. He's lost his mind. We can't have this kind of a controversial figure leading our scientific institution. For them to say all of that really is to say that they think the biblical account is crazy and they will not tolerate someone who takes it seriously and believes it running their scientific organization. Now, the fascinating thing for me personally is that if this is why he was removed, he was presumably a satisfactory and pleasing person to head up this institution right up until they found out that he believes the Bible to be true. And how about that? How about that? Because sometimes that's the way that it works. People are very impressed until they find out that you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is true and you love God. And then they start to reassess and reevaluate everything. Wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Ooh, now I'm not so sure about everything you've published, everything you've said. We were applauding you right up until... That moment, now we might have to go back and audit your papers and your decisions. Maybe you should just take a break, take some leave while we sort this out. We'll let you know. Or, you know what? Never mind. On second thought, we're very busy. I don't think we have time for that. You should probably just go ahead and step down. We'll find somebody else because we don't have time for this. We don't have time for whatever crazy ideas you've got. We're here to do science. Between you and me, wouldn't it just be fitting if, in due time, in due course of time, it turned out that Kudryatsev's position here, believing the Bible, that sort of thinking actually led to major breakthroughs in medical science, in genetics, in our understanding of the cosmos? Wouldn't that be something if somebody just happens to slip through, by God's grace, the gauntlet of modern prejudice against biblical Christianity in the scientific community. And they have major breakthroughs. Now, I think this has been happening, quite honestly. I say, wouldn't that be something? I'm being somewhat sarcastic. It has been happening for quite some time, but the press does not want to highlight the Christian faith of so many prominent, eminent scientists. Whenever their positions, their beliefs work contrary to the convenient narrative favored by the elites, either no mention is made, or if they can't help but mention those inconvenient assertions, those inconvenient positions and beliefs, they remove and discredit otherwise very competent scientists, very reputable scientists. Five minutes before they were canceled, They were very well-respected, very highly sought after, and they wielded a tremendous amount of authority. And maybe this is part of how God keeps us uh, living, on average, 70 to 80 years. If we're lucky, 100-plus years, the really lucky ones, maybe this is part of how it happens, that God allows wicked men who suppress the truth from their unrighteousness to hold us back from being led by competent scientists, competent leaders. They're given over to a reprobate mind. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's part of the judgment that they're under. They're given over to a reprobate mind. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Back to John Knox's story about this. Here's how he explained his comments. Quote, I wanted to emphasize the harmful influence of so-called bad habits, what theologians call sin. They also affect the genome. If a mutation occurs in your body, in your gametes, it will be passed on to your offspring and nothing can be done about it. The conclusion is simple. If you want to have healthy offspring, don't develop bad habits. Don't fall into sin. Hmm. How about that? How about that? We'll move on from talking about Russia, removing scientists for being Bible-believing Christians, believing that Genesis is true history, and we'll come back to the United States of America, and we'll see how we're faring. How are we doing, and are we doing any better than the Russians? First up, Matt Walsh has a piece, an opinion piece, over at the Daily Wire, titled, Democrats Hold a Funeral for DEI, published January 26th of this year. He writes, Some of the few truly entertaining moments you'll find in politics are the times when activists who are extremely ideological, the total fanatics, suddenly have to confront the reality that they're losing. You'll remember that when Donald Trump won in 2016, we saw a lot of that. HBO captured footage of Ben Rhodes, the Obama advisor, sitting shell-shocked on a bench for several minutes when he realized that Hillary Clinton wasn't going to be president. There was also the famous woman screaming and howling as Trump was inaugurated, who became an instant meme. These kinds of moments are great because if you're a sane person, it's a win-win. Your enemies aren't just being defeated, they're also providing some unintended humor on the way out. Yesterday in the state of Utah, we were treated to another one of these moments. The state Senate overwhelmingly passed a bill that will dismantle all, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, end quote, programs in the government, as well as the public education system, as the Salt Lake Tribune reports, quote, the wide sweeping proposal requires that diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, offices at the state's eight public colleges and universities specifically be reframed. They can no longer be race or gender-based, but instead must cater to all students as generalized student success and support centers. The bill additionally bans schools and government employers from asking job applicants for a statement about their beliefs on diversity or inclusion, and schools and employers could lose state funding for violating that. And all entities would be required to eliminate any training on discriminatory practices while replacing that with instruction on free speech from all viewpoints, end quote. Now, how about that? DEI is dead, apparently, in the state of Utah. That's the takeaway. You can't be promoting DEI. How does the Democrat segment of Utah's legislature respond? They show up wearing all black as if they are in mourning, as if this is a funeral, and they ask Utah's Governor Cox to veto this bill and another one having to do with transgendered persons using the restroom, which does not correspond with their sex at birth, that is to say, their chromosomes, whether they have a Y chromosome or they don't. The Democrats in Utah show up wearing all black, and it's awake. It's a funeral to them. Is DEI dead, though? That's the question. They're acting as though they're hurting, they're in pain. They're being very dramatic, but how is DEI doing? If you're a Daily Wire subscriber, you can go and see what Matt Walsh has to say about it, and you can read the rest of that article. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, but let's see what the New York Post is reporting. January 24th, 2024, in an opinion piece editorial from the post-editorial board over at the New York Post, we find DEI machine grows stronger. Critics target homeschooling parents and other commentary. The post-editorial board writes the following, quote, after Claudine Gay's dismissal as Harvard president, the diversity, equity, and inclusion DEI complex is already regrouping end quote, argues Eric Kaufman at Unheard. The school created, quote, an anti-Islamophobia committee alongside the anti-Semitism committee, end quote, and, quote, nominated an anti-Zionist, end quote, to help lead the anti-Semitism group. Quote, faced with pushback from outside its walls, the university has circled its wagons, end quote. Indeed, quote, the DEI complex on campus is shape-shifting, hiding affirmative action under misleading euphemisms here, bolting on some anti-Semitism there, end quote. And donors aren't, quote, anti-woke heroes, end quote, quote, they have punished elite universities for alleged anti-Semitism rather than their poor record on freedom, end quote. Quote, so long as our highest moral ideals and sacred taboos revolve around racism, sexism, and LGBT phobia, elite institutions will be incentivized to push the identity politics agenda, end quote. Here's another quote from the same editorial, quote, it's the Biden administration, not Republicans, which is cutting Medicare Advantage benefits and threatening high quality health care for seniors while making the debt even bigger in the process, end quote, warns Drew Johnson at Fox News. And so we've already moved on, right? So we've already moved on. The DEI machine grows stronger, and that's all you need to know. They're going to change the verbiage. They'll change the language here and there. But those who are withdrawing their donations, they're saying, nope, we're not going to keep on giving money to the universities where testimony came from presidents to Congress, which was rather unflattering towards those who support the nation of Israel existing oppose Hamas, might oppose violent rhetoric, genocidal rhetoric towards Jews, the concern here, as is pointed out by the post-editorial board, is not wokeness, and it's not DEI. It's anti-Semitism. So we're still stuck on race. We're still stuck on ethnicity-driven policy decisions or funding decisions, and already within the editorial Board's contribution, it's time to talk about Medicare Advantage and the Biden administration. Now, another thing which is interesting, and it's brief, they have a segment here. We'll talk about it. Education critics target homeschooling parents. Here's a quote from Reason magazine's Aaron Garth Smith. Quote: Homeschooling is surging as parents want more agency over their child's education, end quote, the editorial board writes. With an estimated 4.7% of kids now homeschooled and, quote, public school enrollment down by nearly 1.3 million students, end quote, from pre-pandemic levels, status quo defenders are, quote, taking notice and calling for more oversight, end quote. They focus on states where it seems child abusing parents, quote, took advantage of lax homeschooling laws to hide their abuse from authorities, end quote. But deeper analysis shows Quote, no evidence that homeschool abuse is even a problem to begin with, end quote. Plus, quote, homeschool regulations might not protect kids from abuse, end quote, but, quote, they do increase administrative burdens, infringe on curricular choices, and subject families to harassment, end quote, by regulators. Rather than, quote, worrying about homeschoolers, policymakers should figure out why millions of students are leaving public schools in the first place, end quote. As far as it goes, I'm glad that the editorial board is drawing attention to this and that they're also talking about how we should not be too quick to pop the cork on a bottle of champagne about Harvard dismissing Claudine Gay. While I'm glad that they're at least touching on these things, and it is interesting to see these things discussed side by side or relatively close by, just Medicare Advantage between the two. I'm getting mixed messages on whether DEI is actually dead and it's time to mourn it for the radical left activists who thought this was the right side of history or whether DEI is stronger than ever and it's just going to rebrand itself and try again. I'm getting mixed messages on whether homeschooling, home education is stronger than ever or whether its demise is eminent? Are we just about to see a nationwide aggressive push to control and stigmatize and regulate and prohibit, where possible, home education? Or are we about to see a renewal and a revival of parental engagement in the education of children, the formation of character with children. It's hard to tell because from one story to the next, you get a very different impression. And it depends on how you're gauging. It depends on how you weigh and measure these things. Being a fan of history, being a student of history myself, I know very often in the tale of a particular battle or a particular war, you'll have an ebb and a flow. And sometimes the right flank collapses, but there's... An unexpected breakthrough in the center that turns the battle around. It looked like these guys were losing, and what do you know? They ended up winning instead. It looked like they had lost all these battles, but what do you know? They won the war. Sometimes you just need to give it time, and sometimes it depends on who you ask and where you look, which or the other is coming out on top. But in part, I bring this up because. In the state of Colorado, we have a legislature which is primarily Democrats. In fact, they have a supermajority. They can do whatever they want. I've heard this directly from the minority leader, Republican leader in the General Assembly, that they have a supermajority, the Democrats do, in our state. And the Republicans, if they say or do anything that... The Democrats don't like the Democrats can unilaterally censure and even remove Republicans at will, and so it's going to go only one direction. It will fall to the voters of Colorado if they have any interest, if they have any appetite at all, to change this dynamic to where it's more balanced, to where it's more deliberative. If the people of Colorado are okay with, even if they favor a supermajority of Democrats voting as a block, and promoting party interests first and foremost, then that's what it'll be for the foreseeable future, for as long as Colorado voters are content with that and want that. And as such, when I read an email from CHECK, the Christian Home Educators of Colorado organization, one of the organizations that we're enrolled with as homeschoolers, When I see the discussion on My Tech High's Facebook page for the school year 2023 to 24, surrounding the CDE proposing rule changes, the State Board of Education considering rule changes that would affect access to funding for parent-led instruction, basically to say we're going to quote unquote clarify the rules to say parents and parent-led instruction, are not permissible for reimbursement or for building their own classes, for leading the instructions, for giving the instruction, and there being any public funding, any reimbursement, even through a program that for five years was in place and was approved and local school districts were approving this program and facilitating it. Nope. The State Board of Education, the Colorado Department of Education is saying, nope, We're not okay with that. We're going to clarify, but that is to say, we're going to shut that off. When I see that, and I see some of the parents in the state of Colorado who may be a little newer to this homeschooling thing, one in particular I was engaging with, and I think a polite enough, respectful enough discussion, although we clearly disagreed, and I think she was a little agitated, not that I blame her for that because all of us are looking at Thousands of dollars either there or not there for the school year. There was talk initially of retroactively making the rule change apply to the 2023 20, to 24 school year, not just being for next school year, 2024 to 25. The prospect of having to repay thousands of dollars you may have received in reimbursements or direct orders for supplemental materials. Or for Spanish lessons, piano lessons, karate classes, subscriptions, memberships. That is a stressful thing, not least in this current economic environment. But I noticed that the gal I was engaging with in the comment section, her profile picture on Facebook has one of those little badges over it that says, I got the COVID vaccine. We can do this together. And I see that, and I think you're probably a little newer to this homeschooling thing than I am. I, who was homeschooled from kindergarten to my senior year of high school and was homeschooled in Eastern Montana, Western Montana, Southern Ohio, back before it was normalized. It's increasingly being normalized even as critics are stigmatizing. And that's part of the reason why they're trying to aggressively stigmatize it right now. They don't want it getting any more popular than it already is. 5% of students in the US being homeschooled, that's a lot. It really is. And how many more besides? How many parents of how many percent more would if they felt like they could, or if they knew how, if they saw an opportunity, or if the funding was there, homeschool their kids. But You're going to have, just like with churches, for instance, or denominational splits. When a denomination in the United States splits over gay marriage or the ordination of women over the last few decades, this has happened several times, but when a denomination splits and more conservative churches in their denomination, which is extraordinarily progressive and liberal, when they leave the denomination that they were a part of for decades maybe even longer, what happens very often is they go to another denomination and they join that denomination and they are among the most liberal churches, if not the most liberal church in the denomination that they've just joined. And they bring a whole host of questions and assertions that catch the more conservative denomination they've just joined flat-footed in many cases. This happened with the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance. A lot of African-American churches left denominations where there was a liberalization with regards to homosexuality and transgenderism. And they joined the SBC. And then the SBC wanted to be welcoming and was afraid of being offensive. They were afraid of alienating these new member churches. And so that's where I have it on good authority from Shadrach Black. That's where the SBC started down this road of considering woke affirming policy changes and statements. That's when the SBC started down this road of, ooh, what do we do with Saddleback and Rick Warren if they're making women into pastors over there? But so also with the homeschooling community, say for instance, in the state of Colorado, you may have a whole lot of people who want to homeschool for a whole lot of reasons. And now that you have this onrush of new home education proponents, homeschooling parents, wanting to homeschool their children, but also in this economic environment, realizing that that's going to place an additional burden on their family's budget. They see a program. And if they're used to 100% relying on Government funding, government programs as they're presented, never mind that they're taxpayer funded programs, taxpayer funded supplements. It's the taxpayer's money that's being given to you in a reimbursement. It's not the government's money. Never mind all that. The way they have been conditioned their whole lives long and probably their parents and their grandparents before them as well is to think. Oh, wow, we're so much more independent than we were before. And so I'm actually comfortable with this. This is fine, right? This is okay. What's the big deal? And so this one gal, she was freaking out a little bit. And I realized between that and some interactions I've had in the last year or two, say, for instance, in reference to Ambleside Online, which was a curriculum that we were using to teach our kids for several years, as they started to innovate on their suggested reading list, and they gave their reasons for innovating. I'm reading through this explanation. My wife is reading through this explanation. We're reading through the comments on that Facebook group and realizing wow, there are a whole lot of homeschoolers on here. There are even program administrators for Ambleside Online, which we thought was this classical Christian education, homeschooling free curriculum, and so great and so wonderful. Great books, classic works of Western literature. Even these guys don't realize how much diversity, equity, inclusivity, social justice they're infusing into their decision-making here and their rationalization, their stated reasons. They don't call it DEI, but it doesn't matter because it is DEI. They don't call this woke, but it is woke. They just don't recognize that it's woke. They think that this is normal because their more typical, familiar native sod makes this little concession and that little Compromise look very tame by comparison. And meanwhile, parents like my wife and I are shaking our heads like, Ooh, man, this is not the direction we want to go. And so we went a different direction. And I don't mean any disrespect towards those who are still using Amplesight online, but we went a different direction and we said, let's go with CMEC instead. It doesn't look like CMEC is doing the woke thing. Is homeschooling on the rise? Yes, it would appear so. Here's a question for you. Is DEI dead and will a rise in homeschooling save something of the American ideal, the American mindset, the Western mind, Western civilization, if from a regulatory standpoint, from a cultural pressure standpoint, even within the homeschooling community increasingly, we're going to just infuse the wokeness and the cultural Marxism and diversity, equity, inclusivity positions and rationales into our homeschooling process. In other words, if my wife and I become social justice warriors, if we become woke and we're homeschooling, are our kids less likely to be social justice warriors and activists and woke than if they were going to a public school where their teachers or the school administrators or the activists who promote certain after-school programs, are promoting wokeness, promoting social justice, promoting critical race theory and radical gender theory, queer theory, radical feminism. No, put simply no. And to the extent that we are hoping that the next generation is less woke, less susceptible to the propaganda of the radical left, more equipped to be able to be good stewards of what has been passed down to them from previous generations, what is good, what is worth maintaining or keeping, learning from, affirming. To the extent that we would hope for that, we would cheer for that, we would want that, we need to be careful what we interpret as a victory or a loss. What do we interpret as a win? What does winning look like here? That's why I bring up the New York Post editorial board post from January 24th, because it highlights an important aspect of the situation we find ourselves in. What if, as homeschooling parents, we get the false sense of security from more and more and more people homeschooling? There's a larger community of homeschooling families with which we can associate, rub shoulders, brainstorm cooperate? And what if our children are very successful and they're having been homeschooled, they're much praised, lauded, celebrated, affirmed. Hey, great job. That's wonderful. What if there's a future in which not only is homeschooling accepted as every bit as legitimate, every bit as respectable, normal, reasonable, safe, since that's so important. But what if, say, your son, your daughter, my son, my daughter, rises even to the level of being head over some national scientific agency like this Russian we talked about a little bit ago. And what if they start incorporating their biblical worldview very reasonably? They couldn't possibly have more credibility in their field. They have this position of authority. They have a long and robust track record of being a competent scientist, trustworthy, a good communicator. And then they make mention of being a Christian and believing that Genesis is true history, that the Bible is a true account of who God is and how he has interacted with the human race for all our history. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're out. They're out because we thought, that arise in homeschooling or normalization of homeschooling, or even what appears to be funding, support, affirmation for homeschooling, was still going to insist on the orthodoxy and the dogma of godless progressivism. And if you ever forget it, you're gone. You're gone. We have to prepare ourselves for that. We have to prepare our children for that possibility. Not that you live in fear, not that you go around worrying about every little thing, because that's not a recipe for good health or having a good testimony. That's not what God calls us to. But we should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We should be the kind of people Proverbs describes as seeing trouble coming and hiding ourselves. We should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own affairs, like Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. And to that end, we don't say, Well, we're not going to get involved politically at all. We're not going to interact with the outside world. No, that's not what God calls us to any more than he calls us to live in constant anxiety. You're not of the world. If you were of the world, they would love you. (laughs) They would. They have every objective reason to love you when you're excellent. It's when they recognize that you're not of the world. You're in the world, but not of it. And you're of a different spirit because if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. It's when they recognize that and they turn a cold shoulder or they turn hostile. That's what you have to watch for. And it's very godly. It's very wise. It's very prudent to be prepared on some level for that and to plan accordingly insofar as it's your responsibility to plan and to be responsible. It's good to not count chickens before they hatch and to not read too much into at first blush may appear to be victories here and there, work for cultural renewal and be salt and light and pray for revival and call for repentance, but also be prepared to be content. If all you can say at the end is like Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, this brings us very neatly to our next bit of reporting to consider, and I'll read this article in its entirety over at Reason.com, published January 23rd of this year by Aaron Garth Smith, filed under School Choice, the title of the article. If you want to read it for yourself, you'll find a link. You should find a link in the description for this podcast episode if you want to follow that. But the title of this article is, Homeschooling Parents Are No Threat to Their Kids, The tagline subtitle is the thesis stricter regulation of homeschooling families will just lead to harassment from government. (laughs) Very directly put Mr. Smith, (laughs) Aaron Garth Smith writes the following homeschooling is surging as parents want more agency over their child's education. An estimated 4.7% of kids are now homeschooled up from 2.8% in 2019, the most recent year reported by federal data. But with public school enrollment down by nearly 1.3 million students compared to pre-pandemic levels, some are taking notice and calling for more oversight. The Washington Post editorial board recently made that case, arguing, quote, it's not the average homeschooler policymakers should be worried about. It's the child who is left far, far behind, end quote. In their view, quote, where there's no oversight, there's no guarantee that children will learn skills considered foundational in public education and essential to adult life, end quote. I'll come back to that at the end, by the way. I really want to come back to that, but not yet. Aaron Garth Smith writes, while more level-headed than many attacks on homeschoolers, Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholet's call for a presumptive ban comes to mind, the editorial misses the mark. Homeschool regulations vary across states, ranging from mandating subjects such as math and reading to demonstrating academic achievement on annual tests. New York has some of the most stringent laws requiring parents to file quarterly reports, maintain hourly attendance logs, and submit annual instructional plans to their local school district, according to the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Michigan has which has few regulatory hurdles for homeschoolers, is in the national spotlight as an example of homeschooling supposedly run amok. Critics point to the bone-chilling case of a Roman Lopez, an 11-year-old boy who was locked in closets, beaten with extension cords, and eventually poisoned with table salts. They claim his father and stepmother, Jordan and Lindsay Piper, who each pleaded no contest to second-degree murder for Roman's death, took advantage of lax homeschooling laws to hide their abuse from authorities. Likewise, the cases of Jerry and Tamal Flore and Tammy and Joel Brown have Michigan policymakers calling for more oversight. The two couples allegedly adopted dozens of children in a money-making scheme that involved, quote, prolonged routine and systematic mental and physical abuse, end quote, said Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. According to her, homeschooling gave the Flora family cover to hide the abuse. Quote, there has to be some sort of monitoring so that those children also benefit from those protections, end quote, she says. In response to the charges, State Rep. Matt Colasar, Democrat from Plymouth, pleaded for action. Quote, Michigan is one of only 11 states that doesn't count or register homeschooled children and abusive parents are taking advantage of that to avoid being found out. It's time to support all Michigan students and change that. Michigan cannot allow this loophole to continue, end quote. These stories are horrifying, and registration requirements might seem like a reasonable step to protect kids from abuse. But it's unlikely any amount of regulations would have prevented these tragedies. In fact, they'd likely cause hardships for the vast majority of homeschool families who do right by their kids. For starters, the Pipers were reported to Child Protective Services, CPS, by Lindsay's sister, Chanel Campbell, who suspected abuse in 2016. Despite multiple inquiries by Campbell, there were no records of CPS investigations into the matter according to the Washington Post. For their part, the Florey and Brown families adopted or fostered nearly 30 children dating back to 2007, a highly regulated process that's overseen by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, MDHHS. In a bizarre twist, one of the defendants, Joel Brown, actually worked for MDHHS and allegedly used his expertise as a child advocate to hide the couple's actions. As it turns out, these stories aren't about homeschooling at all. The only common thread is incompetent government. All three families were already on the authorities' radar, and for years, MDHHS couldn't detect an alleged child abuser within its own cubicles. In fact, the Washington Post's Peter Jamison admits, quote, The few studies conducted in recent years have not shown that homeschooled children are at a significantly greater risk of mistreatment than those who attend public-private or charter schools, end quote. In other words, there's no evidence that homeschool abuse is even a problem to begin with. While homeschool regulations might not protect kids from abuse, they do increase administrative burdens, infringe on curricular choices, and subject families to harassment by government officials. In a particularly egregious case, a public school in New York reported a grandmother to CPS after she was a day late with the mandated paperwork. It's easy to see why many homeschool families are skeptical of any government oversight, even if it's just notification requirements. Instead of worrying about homeschoolers, policymakers should figure out why millions of students are leaving public schools in the first place. And as I said, that's the end of the article. So let's go back up and let's follow up on the second paragraph here. The Washington Post editorial board Arguing, quote, it's not the average homeschooler policymakers should be worried about. It's the child who is left far, far behind, end quote. Quote, where there's no oversight, there's no guarantee that children will learn skills considered foundational in public education and essential to adult life, end quote. Pause, time out, hold on, (laughs) hold up, wait a minute. There's no guarantee that children will learn skills considered foundational in public education. Full stop. There, I fixed it for you. There's no guarantee that when kids attend public schools, they're going to learn the skills they need, nor is there any guarantee that they're not going to be abused. I'm very curious if there were stats out there. I haven't seen them yet. I'd love to find them. If you know where the stats are, if you've seen some studies delving into this, by all means, email me at garretashleymullet at protonmail.com. I want to see the comparison side by side. I would be very, very surprised if any studies have been done. But <laughs> why I think studies have probably not been done on this is because we have some idea of what the studies would show. And And here's what I would propose somebody do a study on. What are the rates of self-harm suicidal thoughts, and even attempts at suicide for those who attend public school, for those who attend private school, and for those who are homeschooled in our country, school-aged children, and how do the stats, what are the percentages like when you put them up side by side? What is the probability that a child in a homeschooled environment, and here I'll speak to homeschooling because I wrote. Book, and this is why we homeschool. I was homeschooled from kindergarten up to my senior year of high school. Believe me, I know homeschooling is not perfect, but that's because people aren't perfect. I think it's more perfect (laughs) than public education. And I want to live in the real world instead of utopia, which is no place. But believe me, I know homeschooling is not perfect. And I know that bad things can happen in a homeschooling environment, or there can be neglect, there can be abuse. And yet, I am terribly curious. What's the probability that a child in a homeschool environment will be bullied to the point of taking their own life in a homeschool environment? What's the probability, statistically? What are the percentages out of all the homeschoolers in a state or in the country that a particular homeschooler is going to develop a substance abuse problem, that they're going to be harassed by their classmates, or by teachers for that matter, what's the probability that a homeschooled student is going to be seriously contemplating self-harm or engaging in behaviors that are injurious to themselves, intentionally trying to harm themselves? What's the probability that they contemplate suicide or even attempt suicide in comparison to public schooled students? I want to see those stats because I think the, we want mandates. We want more regulations. We want more oversight. We want more submissions. We want more work samples. We want more reporting, et cetera, et cetera. We want wellness checks. We want to install a security camera in every room of your house so we can watch you like this is Big Brother, the show, but it's really actually Big Brother, George Orwell's 1984, just to make sure you're being kind to your child. You know, (laughs) the real rubber meets the road rubric, the, the bellwether, the canary in the coal mine, if you will, would be if you have an equal or greater incidence of self-harm and suicide or thoughts along those lines or attempts along those lines in a homeschool environment compared to a public school environment. For starters, if we're talking about emotional health, mental health, physical health, show me that study. Conduct that study. I think it's not going to be conducted. I think it hasn't been conducted because we all have a pretty solid idea of what the results would be. The results would not be at all flattering for the public education system. In order for a child to acquire the tools of learning and the skills, as the Washington Post editorial board puts it, foundational in public education and essential in adult life or essential to adult life, In order for them to acquire any of that, they have to have a will to live. And my concern is that the public education system has gotten increasingly good at controlling, regulating, monitoring, assessing, quantifying, but also in the process, taking away the will to live and even a telos, a purpose to life for the vast majority of American children. They may succeed despite the system. But is it too much to ask that parents who know their child, they may not be an expert on educational theory. They may not have gotten a master's degree or a PhD in educational theory. They may not sit on the State Board of Education, SBE. They may not have an official title with the CDE, Colorado Department of Education. They're not an expert on what The bureaucracy would insist they be an expert on in order to carry any weight, but they're an expert on their child. Is it too much to ask that parents who are experts on their children would say and be respected in saying at a certain point, you know what? This is not a good environment. This is not conducive to learning or even life itself. And maybe in a lot of cases, public education is not conducive to learning because it's not conducive to life. It's not a holistic approach to the person, to the human being that is liable to have a healthy outcome. It's despite the system. It's when parents, even when their kids are attending the public schools, operate to offset the effects of the system, the influence of the system. It's when individual teachers who love this or that child, and they see the potential, invest in this or that child. It's not the system. You got to Distinguish here. you got to separate this out. It's individual teachers who love that kid and want to see that kid do well. They see that kid is really struggling. They see that kid is getting bullied and harassed. They're falling behind. Maybe they've got trouble at home or maybe they just don't know what's going on. It's when individual teachers working outside of the policies and the rulemaking and the procedures, not necessarily in opposition, but working despite them, working regardless of them invest in an individual human being who is an adolescent. That's when you see success. That's the offset. It's when that child has friends who help the child to have purpose and belonging, like Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning. That's when you see a reasonably healthy, well-adjusted, upright, moral, optimistic, enthusiastic child in the public education system. But it's not all this that they want to apply to the home-educated child that is going to make the home-educated child the better for it. Because it's not any of that that is actually serving well the public school child. You know, it would be one thing if the public schools could legitimately speak from a high horse and their outcomes were demonstrably, consistently, year over year, decade after decade, even as good. But ideally, for the way that they relate to homeschoolers, they would be producing much better results to be talking about homeschooling and talking to homeschoolers the way that they do so routinely, so often. I want to say, if Mr. Durham or Dr. Sheffles ever listened to this podcast episode, they're two of the three Republicans on the State Board of Education for Colorado. I want to say, if either of you respected figures ever listen to this, I want to say thank you for the comments you made, the observations, the questions you raised in the December 13th State Board of Education meeting that I watched and listened to. Also, the February 14th and 15th meetings that I listened to and watched. Thank you so much. Because here's what Dr. Scheffels and Mr. Durham Pointed out when they were able to get a word in edgewise and finish a thought, even when the Democrats on the board, especially the chairwoman who represents Centennial, weren't procedurally and snidely, passive aggressively trying to shut them down. Here's what they had to say They said, We're fixing problems that don't exist. We're solving problems that don't exist. We're trying to fix something that's not broken. Or, can you tell me what percent? of parental engagement, parental involvement is too much. Are we talking 60-40, 50-50? At what point does the parent leading the instruction of their child being involved in the education of their child exceed the proper amount for them to enjoy funding for a supplemental program that their child has been benefiting greatly from? At what point does it cross the threshold? Do you know? Do you have an assigned percentage? What are we saying here? You know, in the public schools, we're failing. And I heard them say this. In the public schools, we're failing kids every day, day after day. They're getting bad outcomes and a bad experience. They're not learning what they need to be learning. They're dropping out. They're checking out. They don't care. And instead of us figuring out how do we serve those kids better? What could we do differently to make sure those kids are healthier, happier, better adjusted, more enthusiastic learners. Instead of that, what are we doing? We're going to stigmatize and scrutinize and harass the parents in our state who are as involved as they possibly could be by definition. You know, we're always complaining about parental engagement in the public schools that we need more parental engagement. Oh, what's up with these parents who just think the schools are going to figure everything out? But then in the case of homeschoolers, we're complaining, that they're too involved. They want to pick the curriculum. They want to build the classes. They want to teach their kid. They want to work through it with them. They've got this. They're good. And we're going to say, nope, can't do that. Now, the pushback from the Democrats on the state board was, oh no, the homeschool law has said for a long time now, parents have the right to homeschool their kids if they want to. We have no jurisdiction over them. They can teach their kids whatever they want to teach them, however they want to teach them. It's not our business. They just can't receive public funds. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. Everything they're saying doesn't apply to homeschoolers when they homeschool in the state of Colorado has been applying to homeschoolers enrolled through My Tech High for all the years that we've been enrolled in My Tech High. We submit learning logs every week for each of the children. And you might say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. That's not a good idea. We made our decision. And it shouldn't have to be that way. And it doesn't even have to be that way. You could just say, no, we're not going to sign up for a program like that. That's too risky. It's too much government intrusion. Yes, it is too much government intrusion. You're right. But we made the strategic decision, given our economic situation, our economic reality, that it would be more benefit than cost. We were willing to accept the exposure to risk. Not that we trust the government. Not that we trust educational bureaucrats. Not that we trust... The state of Colorado's Department of Education or the State Board of Education, but that we are going to just have to take the risk because otherwise economically, especially through COVID, having moved to the state in September of 2019, and then all of the craziness of lockdowns, hours being cut, my pay basically being renegotiated by my employer, no overtime unless it was approved, all that, rising costs of food, rent, fuel, utilities, everything. We made the calculated decision. You know what? As intrusive as this is, it's not so intrusive that we can't accommodate what they're asking in reporting requirements and they want us to do evaluations every other year. That's fine. We can do that. It's not so bad. And they've always been glowing, by the way. Certified teachers, we send our lesson plans off to, samples of work off to, our curriculum plan for the year off to, very complimentary. And with good reason, I might add. But everything that the State Board of Education is saying, oh yeah, I don't think that's happening. And they don't even know, by the way, which is shocking. It's like, wow, you guys are going to make a decision that affects thousands of children in your state. Thousands of families, you're going to make a decision. And you're just like, oh, I don't think that's happening. Testing, meeting testing requirements. Okay, great. Great. Wonderful. Let's all make decisions based on what you don't think is happening. Got it. (laughs) Tell me again about your advanced degree from some prestigious university and your decades of white collar work and activist work and how that is superior to my having been homeschooled 12 years now of our homeschooling our children, our having seven children who are school-aged. Tell me again (laughs) about how you don't think this or that is happening, and so you're going to go ahead and take a vote next month. Got it. Okay, cool. But on a happier note, Aaron Garth Smith's article here at Reason Magazine, he's exactly right. Stricter regulation of homeschooling families will just lead to harassment from government. The presumption for the big government types and for the bureaucrats who have to justify their jobs and lawyers who, this is how they make their living, is when the laws are complicated and so you need them more often, stricter regulation of homeschooling families is trying to shift the blame for bad outcomes from public education to home education. The sales pitch, even with regards to the proposed rule changes here in the state of Colorado, with regards to programs like My Tech High, the sales pitch is we don't want our money, our funding going to children who are not in our system, which is to say we don't have control over it And so we don't like it, which is to say they don't altruistically care about the outcomes of children in a general sense. They care about, in a very self-interested way, which can't be entirely bad, it's legitimate on some level, but they care about the children who are in their system, in their schools, who reflect on their performance and who affect their job security or their career prospects or their respectability. They care about those kids, and if they could find a way to take credit for successes in a homeschooling environment, they would be more favorable towards homeschooling, but when they don't get any of the credit, all they think, all they see is, well, there goes some of my power, some of my capacity to control the outcome and get credit. Meanwhile, in a public school environment, very often it's the parents who are blamed And the irony of this whole business is it's the parents who are blamed when there's a bad outcome, very often. Oh, the parents weren't engaged in the right way. The parents weren't engaged enough. When the parents are as engaged and involved as they possibly could be, and you can't satisfy these people there either, maybe this isn't actually about the truth. And maybe this is not actually about justice. Maybe this isn't actually about... Diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Maybe this is really just looking for a moral justification for plundering other people to pad your own birdcage. On the other hand, where you do have some who are being honest, they have every reason in the world, one would think, to say, yeah, let's take that money away from homeschool families in our state so we have more money pour into public schools that are struggling, which is to say that they're having worse and worse outcomes. The more and more money you give them to this point, they're not having better and better outcomes. So maybe more money is not what's needed. You have some honest participants, I think in the case of Dr. Scheffels and Mr. Durham on the current SBE here in Colorado saying more money is not the answer for our schools, for our system. Our system and our schools are presuppositionally, philosophically on the wrong course. And so more money is not going to fix that. You have to change the thinking about this. And actually, maybe we could learn a thing or two from the kids who are thriving, the parents who are teaching their children successfully in the home. Maybe we could learn a thing or two from these alternatives that are competing with us who are actually attracting more parents to want to do likewise. You know, here's the thing. If you are unbiased, if you are objective and you see more and more and more parents wanting to homeschool, you go from 2.8% in 2019 to 4.7% estimated. When you see that many more parents, if you're unbiased homeschooling their kids, you maybe ask yourself, okay, why are all these parents wanting to homeschool their kids? Why more? Why now? But if you're biased if you have a prejudice against home education, you have a prejudice against parents, you have a prejudice against homes and families, maybe you don't ask that question. Maybe you just immediately jump to what seems to you the simplest, most harmonious answer relative the rest of your presuppositions, the rest of your beliefs and convictions. There's a sudden uptick in the number of parents interested in homeschooling because the parents want to abuse their kids away from our watching eyes, where we can't stop them. That's the only reason I can think of. That's all I can come up with. It must be that the parents want to neglect and abuse their children. That's why so many more parents want to homeschool their kids. Yeah, it probably is, you know, nearly 5% of parents at least who want to abuse their children. And, you know, that pandemic was very stressful. And so all these parents, they just want to homeschool their kids so they have somebody to beat up on at home while they're laid off out of work. Their hours were reduced. They're working from home. That's what it must be. Or alternatively, you say, even if they do mean well, even if they have good intentions, they think this 5%, they're ignorant. How could they possibly competently teach their children? I just can't even believe it. Do you know how long I went to school for this? Do you know how many years I studied? Do you know how much college debt I took out? to get this advanced degree, and you mean to tell me some parent who doesn't have any of that is going to have a better outcome teaching their child than I will? And the answer is yes. But if pride gets in the way, if being wise in their own eyes gets in the way, that's the last thought that occurs to them. They don't even ask that question. It's not even on their radar. It's not even on the list of questions to ask. You know, it's interesting. Malcolm Gladwell's got a book he published a number of years ago, back in 2007 actually to be more precise titled blink the power of thinking without thinking and he talks about thinking fast and thinking slow which is another book similar along similar lines but malcolm gladwell he asks the question which is better thinking from your gut or really taking your time sitting there with a pipe for hours contemplating mulling it over don't get me wrong i'm a fan of That kind of thinking, I like long form thinking, I think actually very much influenced by Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, that sometimes that kind of thinking is exactly what's needed and that will produce better outcomes. And other times you actually talk yourself out of, the longer you think about it, it's actually just you trying harder to think yourself out of, talk yourself out of the most intuitive, simple, straightforward, efficient, and right answer because you don't like it. And I think a lot of these higher education degrees, advanced degrees, especially the ones that become golden tickets into the highest levels of the bureaucracy at the state level, at the federal level, I think a lot of them, they're not superior thinking applied to advanced problems. They're actually muddied thinking applied to much simpler problems than is admitted. And a lot of this over-reliance on experts is really just selfish con artists in various spheres having conspired together, not on purpose, but just by accident. Their selfishness just coincided. Their powers combined. They are Captain Planet. They are Voltron or a Megazord or what have you. They've conspired together inadvertently to convince the majority of Americans that it's too much work. It's too difficult. It's joyless. It's frustrating. It's stressful. You don't want to. Even if you do, you shouldn't. We shouldn't let you. You'll just make a mess of it. You're too stupid. You're too incompetent. You don't have the experience. You don't want to get the experience. You don't want to get the know-how or the satisfaction. There won't be any satisfaction of doing it well because you won't do it well. In fact, if you think you do it well, that's just all the more laughable because that just shows. That just proves how little you know. It's a whole lot of con artists trying to justify incredible investments of their time, energy, and attention, and even taking out mountains of debt so that they could strut their stuff and parade around telling the rest of us that not only are we too stupid to make decisions without them, to figure things out without them, but we're too stupid to even know that we're too stupid. You want to talk about abuse? You want to talk about an abusive environment? That is an abusive environment, and this is why we homeschool. For our next story, though, let's consider an opinion piece by Miles Smith over at the Epoch Times, published January 2nd, updated January 11th. I think I came across it and threw it into a browser tab roundabout when it was first published at the beginning of January. So it's been just hanging out on my computer for seven weeks or so. Miles Smith. If you're not familiar, he's Miles Smith IV, and he's a visiting assistant professor at Hillsdale College and a historian of the Old South and Atlantic world. He took his BA from the College of Charleston and holds a PhD in history from Texas Christian University. He's a native of Salisbury, North Carolina. Try not to hold that against him. Never mind. I'm joking. I don't know anything about Salisbury. I don't have anything against North Carolina. But his article, or his opinion piece, I should say, which is kind of an article too, it's a specific kind of article. It's titled, Decline is a Choice. And here's the tagline, American decline isn't inevitable, but stopping decline will mean acting to protect the liberal order in ways more forceful than we have become accustomed to. Brace yourself. Here comes the commentary. He writes, is America in decline or, as one commentator put it, in self-doubt? Recent and not so recent news might make citizens of the Republic think things are in rough shape, and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Domestic strife and foreign policy adventurism have undoubtedly hurt the United States' relative power and prestige compared to the height of American influence in the 1990s. For a decade, the American Union, termed a hyperpower instead of a superpower in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, led the international liberal order and upheld Western political norms. George W. Bush's administration put the first dent in what seemed like a nearly invulnerable U.S. regime through the disastrous invasion of Iraq and a botched response to the financial crisis of 2008. Bad policies and poor prioritization continue in foreign policy, but the news might not be as bad as it seems. Quote, The talks of relative power decline, while true, remain wildly overrated, end quote, as Sumantra Maitra recently put it. America might not be what it was in 2001, but that doesn't mean it's fragile. Quote, relative decline results from bad choices, Mr. Maitre said, quote, but they are choices which by definition can be reversed. It needs political will and an agent to carry through, but it is doable, end quote, The citizens of the United States need to understand that decline is a choice. Suppose we're to remain a strong country capable of upholding liberal democracy. In that case, we must realize that this will mean acting forcefully and ensuring that transcendent moral beliefs and commitments support liberal democracy. In the aftermath of World War II, Louis Rubin Jr., a Jewish Carolinian poet, jested that two types of Americans knew that history could happen to them. Jews and southerners rubin's jest meant that Jews and southerners understood that they hadn't escaped history Macro-historical and epochal events could and still do occur human life could still be turned upside down progressives nowadays seem blissfully unaware that history can happen to the united states on mass Sexual revolution and flirtation with Maoist iconoclasm in the form of Black Lives Matter and other radical movements are indulged without any consideration of the potential consequences of such an earth-shattering overthrow of the social and political orders. Classical historians understood the profound consequences of stabilizing an empire's political and social foundations. Subtly, without even noticing, a polity would lose its strength and become a weak, enervated, and emasculated version of what it once had been. Times of relative prosperity and apparent international peace blinded citizens to what happened as their empire slowly was drained of the transcendent values that had once made it strong. In Tacitus' Annals, he wrote of the Roman Republic's slide into imperial decadence and social decay. Quote, at home, all was tranquil and there were magistrates with the same titles. There was a younger generation sprung up since the victory of Actium, and even many of the older men had been born during the civil wars. How few were left who had seen the Republic, end quote. Tacitus warned his readers that these subtle changes in the Roman regime had profound effects on society. There was no such thing as politics denuded of moral consequence. The Roman state, Tacitus lamented, quote, had been revolutionized and there was not a vestige left of the old morality, end quote. When Americans overthrew the British Empire in North America and formed their republic, they understood, like Tacitus and Romans before them, that societal success and the endurance of what Thomas Jefferson called the American Empire of Liberty hinged on the maintenance of specific moral and social commitments. Most, but not all, coming from the Judeo Christian tradition received from Western Europe. John Adams argued unambiguously that the U.S. Constitution only worked for moral and religious people, and he didn't believe that the definitions of morality and religion were meant to be value neutral and redefined ad infinitum by every succeeding generation. This wasn't the concern only of the 18th century founders. In the late 20th century, Russell Kirk warned, quote, in no previous age have family influence, sound early prejudice, and good early habits been so broken in upon by outside force as in our own time, end quote. Morality and virtue, quote, among the rising generation is mocked by the inanity of television, by pornographic films, by the 20th century cult of the peer group, end quote. In our own time, the rise of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and the BLM movement have sought a wholesale overthrow of the long durée of Western moral and social commitments by accusing the very foundations of the American regime of being racist and so on. American commitments to liberalism and tolerance might make us want to indulge our tendency to discuss or debate the merits of this new moral order being foisted upon us but that would be to admit an ideology that was essentially seditious. American liberalism and the moral and social commitments that have upheld American power worldwide are too important to negotiate. Americans and the American state need to act forcefully to eradicate ideologies that would undermine the American order that allows us the freedoms we value so highly. American decline isn't inevitable, but stopping decline will mean acting to protect the liberal order in ways more forceful than our decadent and slothful age has become accustomed to. And of course, there's the writer, which very often accompanies opinion pieces. Even at the best of places, even in the best of outlets, views expressed in this article are opinions of the author and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Epoch Times. In other words, if he offended you, please don't be offended with us. No, we just published it. We didn't write it. Like Avram from Fiddler on the Roof. It's not my fault. I only read it. Anyway, here's my big question for Miles Smith and for anybody who would agree with his sentiments there. Is there something missing? And I ask this kind of a question, not because I think what's included is wrong per se, but I don't think it's the whole story. I think there's more to the story. There's a missing key ingredient that... Especially having started out this episode reading the last two chapters of 2 Kings, I personally could not in good conscience neglect to include in the equation. Namely, what role does God play in the choice of whether a nation, a people, even an empire declines? What choice does God make, and how does he make that choice? What is said in Second Kings 24 to 25, it's not left to the imagination. It's not left ambiguous, open to interpretation. Well, I don't know. I, you know, who can say why God gave Judah over to the Chaldeans? Who could say why God allowed them to be conquered by a series of <laughs> foreign powers to become occupied territory again and again and again and again? It's one of life's little mysteries. No, not if you read the text. The reason they were given over into the hands of Chaldeans, Babylonians, for instance, for example, where we left off, is because of the sins of Manasseh. Jerusalem was filled with innocent blood. And that word innocent is crucial. Innocent blood is to say, these are not people who are put to death because of their crimes, they committed no crime, which deserved death, and yet Jerusalem is filled with their blood. And that's before they're being conquered by a foreign power. When our streets are filled with blood of innocent men, women, and children, and especially the unborn, we should not suppose that this is all our choice. We make the decision. Yeah, yeah. how about the decision to repent? And what if, right, what if some form of godliness is embraced, but it denies the power? What if it's disingenuous? What if it's not actually godliness? It's a form of godliness, which is to say it's an illusion. It's a mirage. It's just the trappings of religion. What if it's just a revival in name only, and it's not actually a turning away from sin, sexual revolution, and especially in our country, abortion. You don't get any more innocent than unborn children. They haven't sinned against you. They haven't committed any crime. They don't deserve death. They've done nothing deserving of death. And yet, what are you doing? You're putting them to death. Or for that matter, when murderers are put back onto the streets, when they're not put to death, for that matter, when it's highly suspect in many cases, Why certain people just turn up dead unexpectedly after being critical, after getting some dirt on so and so or this other person. When that becomes typical or that becomes routine or that becomes normal, when we normalize that, when we shrug about it, like Hannah Arendt talks about in The Origins of Totalitarianism, when we shrug about it because we're cynical, because we don't believe anything is true and that there is any objective standard of goodness, that's when we get into the same spot that I believe Judah was in in the last two chapters of 2 Kings where God says, I am not going to pardon them. No, that's it. That's enough. On some level, yes, this is our choice to make, whether we decline or it was our choice to make and there's a possibility that we already made the choice. And now it's just what it is. We're on a trajectory and we're too stubborn, too stiff-necked, too unreasonable, to brainwashed and pleasure-loving and truth-hating to change our minds at this point. And so we're just committed. That's a possibility. And that's not a possibility. That's not a explanation that we should rule out. Now, God knows whether there is some other opportunity, some other alternative. In our next episode, I hope to talk about Emperor by Jeffrey Parker a biography of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, at a very pivotal time in European history, Western history, with the conquering of the New World by Conquistadores. I hope to talk about that book and do a review of it. And so I won't give too much away for right now. But I will say, with regards to reading that book, it strikes me as amazing how powerful, how dominant... How impressive the Spanish Empire was, how much of the globe it spanned, and how bold Charles V was because he had so much wealth, because he had so much territory that he presided over. And how's Spain doing today? Is Spain what it was under Charles V? I would say no. America can absolutely go, geography arguments aside, America can actually definitely go in the same bucket at the end as the Spanish Empire. We're dominant until we're not. Tell me all you want about natural harbors, rivers, very favorable growing seasons, fertile soil. None of that can protect us from being brainwashed into killing ourselves into believing that life has no purpose or that the whole purpose of life is pleasure. And so actually we destroy ourselves and one another. Nobody external has to do it. We do the work. I'll show myself out. Thank you. From a certain standpoint, I agree with Miles Smith. Decline is a choice, but I would say it's not just a choice that we make. It's also a choice that God makes. Yes, he makes his choice in some way, in some Former fashion, which I haven't figured out yet. In some way, he makes his choice in relation to the choice that we make. But have we already made the choice? That's what remains to be determined. And I don't know the answer to that question. I hope because I live here, my family lives here, my friends live here, I've always lived here, I'm from here, I hope that we have not made the choice and that there is still time. And I hope we can still and will still humble ourselves before the Lord. But even if we don't as a nation, as a people, I know that God is just, and I know that he's kind, and I know that he's merciful. And it might just be like in 2 Kings 24 and 25, I think especially 25. The remnant that's left in the land, it's the very poor people. And who would you guess are probably the very poor people after decades, generation after generation of corrupt, wicked rulers, who would you guess are the very poor people? Probably the ones who have multi-generationally been on the wrong side of the status quo, a wrong side of the establishment political forces in their country. Here's the irony. When the prophets say, tell the righteous it will go well with them, it might just mean, after a fashion, that the righteous who have been preyed on and oppressed by the wicked in Israel and in Judah For generations will ironically get deliverance. They will get some respite, some peace for a change if God brings in the Egyptians, brings in the Assyrians, brings in the Babylonians at a certain juncture to remove the so-called best men who are really just the most corrupt men when your morality is upside down. That could happen. I wouldn't rule that possibility out. And I also wouldn't rule out the possibility that, as in other places at other times, maybe God migrates his people, even if there's not a general repentance and a general revival. Maybe he migrates his people to somewhere else. I don't know. God willing, we'll live and do this or that. But I will say, the surest, happiest place to put your hope and your trust is not in princes, and it's not in your own capacity to choose. It's in God. Who is gracious, he is kind, he is slow to anger, he gives wisdom to all without finding fault. He sends his reins on the just and the unjust. And if you have not always been just, maybe that's good news to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. He is the good shepherd. Only if and when we as a people remember that can our country endure. Will our country persist. If the bulk of us, if the majority of us, if the supposedly best of us decide to continue on ignoring that or making war on that, then the decision has already been made. It's already written. It's done. It's a done deal. And we're just a country that doesn't realize it's dead yet. For our last story though, on a happier note, (laughs) we should try to end on happy notes than many of the stories we discussed in this episode. Or even, uh, let's be honest, Second Kings 24 and 25 would, uh, I think, be fairly described as. Aaron Wren, I like very much. And if you haven't, do subscribe to his Substack. I get email notifications anytime he's got a new Substack. I don't read them all. I don't have time to read them all. I wish I did, though, because... All of the substacks of his that I do read, I really appreciate. I think I benefit from. Sometimes they're just a quick collection of thoughts or references, but I always get something. I always get a benefit from Aaron Wren. If that changes, if he goes bad, if he spoils, if he exceeds his sell-by date, then I will update you. I will let you know when and where I have a difference with Mr. Aaron Wren, significant enough to not recommend his Substack, but as it stands, I hear he's got a new book out talking all about the negative world, and if you don't know what that is, you should go check it out, because if you're a Christian and you're feeling like something has shifted dramatically in this country from what you were familiar with even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you're older, maybe 30, 40 years ago, check out his thesis, check out his explanation that there was a period of American history he would describe as positive world where to be a Christian was a net good. It was recognized universally by all Americans as a net good. And that positive world gave way in, let's say, the 2010s. I think that's right about when he says the shift happened. But the 2010s, maybe late 2000s, to what he refers to as neutral world. And when he talks about neutral world, he says, essentially, somebody who would be a Christian in public, behaving in a Christian way, making reference to the Christian faith, explaining their positions or their actions, their engagements, or what they wouldn't engage with in terms of their Christian faith, their Christian beliefs and convictions. That drew, by and large, a shrug from the powers that be and from the institutions and from the general public. Oh, you're a Christian. Okay, yeah, well, that's that's one way to live your life, I suppose. Yeah, you know, okay. Lots of people believe lots of things, I suppose. Anyway, get to the point. Aaron Ren would say, he does say, and he makes a forceful case for this, that we now live in negative world. And if you're following, if you're tracking, (laughs) positive world meant that uh, as an American, to be a Christian, to express Christian faith in public life, was viewed as a positive thing, neutral world. It was kind of a shrug. Yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Don't care. Negative world is where an expression of Christian faith, acting as a Christian, talking like a Christian, being for and against certain things, participating or not participating in certain cultural trends because you're a Christian, is viewed negatively. It's described in very critical terms. You will more likely suffer a penalty. You will probably (laughs) be closer to Isaiah uh, under the reign of Manasseh, for instance, You're more liable to get sawn in two for correcting the king, calling the king to account in our current climate. And the way it used to be was more like when Hezekiah was king. Isaiah asks him questions. Oh, Who were those men? What did you tell them? What did they see? What did you show them? It was more likely that even very great men, maybe especially great men in positive world America, would submit to that sort of a line of questioning, and they would be responsive to it, and they would say, the word of the Lord is good. Why not? There will be peace in my time. I trust to God and his purposes. Now, the response is more likely to be, how dare you undermine me? How dare you question my authority? How dare you argue contrary to the expert opinions, expert testimony, the policy, the rules, increasingly the legal framework, or even the penumbra of the legal framework, the legislative will as we interpret it. How dare you do that? We'll show you, we'll punish you. (laughs) Here was Aaron Wren's January 17th Substack post. And I'll read not all of it, but I'll read a extended passage because the title of it is what caught my attention. And I think you'll be encouraged by it. The title of the post From January 17th, is here's what conservative institutional capture looks like. Aaron Wren writes One of the principles I keep highlighting between left and right is asymmetry. The left and right have different values, operate in different ways, and are in different positions in society. Hence, if you are on the right, you have to remember that what worked for the left won't work for you. You need to use different tactics. Yes. There are some techniques that are available to anyone, but it doesn't work to simply read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and think you can make those same rules work for you. Today, I want to highlight that institutional capture works completely differently for the right versus the left. The left seems to do well at burrowing into organizations, working their way into positions of authority or leverage, and then using those to transform the institution from the inside out. People on the left typically don't care about the actual mission of the organization. In fact, they frequently think the organization has a bad mission and that it's their job to change that. Hence, they can devote all of their efforts to institutional capture and transformation. Conservatives are often bad at stopping this because they're more interested in the mission than organizational politics. This left approach is sometimes called the quote, long march through the institutions, end quote. Some people have advocated that conservatives try to do the same thing. However, it's highly unlikely to work. For one thing, left-controlled institutions are not numb enough to let conservatives in the door or allow them to do any sort of subversion. And by nature, few conservatives have the interest, conscience, or stomach for successfully capturing institutions from the inside. However, there's a right-wing version of institutional capture rather than attempting a bottom-up project of capture and infiltration. The right-wing model is a top-down restructuring of an institution modeled on a private equity approach. The way someone on the right captures and restructures a failing institution is to take it over from the top the way a private equity firm would buy out an underperforming company and then reform the organization to function well and on mission. I will highlight some examples of this. The first is what Ron DeSantis is doing at New College of Florida, NCF. In many states, governors nominally control state universities because they appoint a majority of the board. But most of them stuff those boards full of milk toast cronies who rubber stamp what the administration wants and even enthusiastically support the administration in empire-building endeavors. DeSantis saw an opportunity with NCF, it would be very politically challenging to try to shake up, say, Florida State. But NCF was a very small, liberal arts-type public school without a high profile. Thus, it was a good testbed for his approach. DeSantis appointed a reformist board, which then pushed out the president and started a process to restructure the school into one modeled after Hillsdale. Apparently, 40% of the faculty left, which is a feature, not a bug, of the transformation, the student body will have to be rebuilt as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of media shrieking over this, but DeSantis has the legal authority to do what he's done, and as the top elected official in the state, one who won a recent overwhelming victory, he has a public mandate as well, something that university insiders can't claim. NCF is a great example of right-wing institutional capture and restructuring, albeit a work in progress, where the ultimate outcome is uncertain. Now we'll just stop right there. There's about half again as much, maybe two thirds more to this sub stack from Aaron Wren. As with the other items we've discussed in this podcast episode, you can find the links in the description for this podcast episode. But what I want to suggest to you is the single biggest thing standing between us and this mode is probably, quite honestly, that a lot of conservative Christians in particular are too nice. Quite simply, put bluntly, we're too nice. And when I say we're too nice, what I mean is we don't have a good understanding of justice or how it could ever be even remotely possible to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God all at the same time. The moment a Christian in the United States starts to advocate for doing justice, the knee-jerk reaction from the mainstream of American evangelicalism is to call for mercy, as if these two are completely at odds. But I would remind you, for instance, for example, of how highly praised Josiah, king of Judah, is when he initiates the reforms that he does he is commended as king over Judah when the copy of the book of the law is read for him, when it's found during the renovation and the repair of the temple of God in Jerusalem, it's read for him, he tears his clothes, and he calls all the people, great and small, to hear him read the book of the law to them as well. Like Shaphan, the secretary, had read the book of the law to him, he reads the book of the law, the book of the covenant to the people and reestablishes that covenant. And even though it doesn't last forever, in his day, what is said of him is that there was no king like him before him and there was no king like him after him who followed the Lord and walked in his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. Josiah went after the idols which his father and his grandfather before him had erected or protected Josiah reinstituted the Passover in a way it hadn't been observed since the days of the judges. Josiah is commended for it by God. Everything he does that is recounted in Kings, Second Kings, to reform Judah and to put them back on the proper footing, he does it because he loves God and it is pleasing in the sight of God that he exercises his authority in that way. Put simply, Josiah does justice. Now, I say that and the knee-jerk reaction to that point for modern mainstream American evangelicals is that's Old Testament, Garrett. And it didn't save Judah anyway. So what's the point? How would it be? Let me ask you this. How would it be if you had a dispute between two children of yours and your answer to the dispute was to say, you know what, just both of you forgive each other. One's picking on the other, bullying the other, harassing the other, tormenting the other, being just very mean, awful, rude to the other. And you say, you know what? I just love mercy, like Jesus. And you know what? You both are going to die someday anyways. And so what's the point? You have a sinful nature anyway, so what's the point? If you as a parent were to say that sort of a thing, I believe because this is what the Bible teaches, not because I believe it, does the Bible teach it, but I believe this because this is what the Bible teaches. You would be a worker of lawlessness. That's not biblical grace that you're extending in that case. That's, we should sin that grace might abound all the more type grace. That's what Bonhoeffer would have called cheap grace. So we have to understand when Aaron Wren, for instance, is talking about institutional capture and 40% of the staff of some public college in Florida clearing out the president being fired. The board being replaced. You have to understand, that's a significant number of people who would be upset, maybe putting on all black, staging some kind of a photo op, inviting the press, mourning publicly, asking the governor to change his mind. You have to understand, this would be a significant number of people saying, oh, but how could you? Oh, this is so heartless. A significant number of students writing letters. Oh, but I love this professor. Oh, I love this president. He's so great and wonderful. And how could you? And that's so heartless. No, no. Learn the word no. <laughs> and learn how to follow it up with no means no. Or else you don't know justice. And you might just be a worker of lawlessness. Institutions actually. Currently led by conservatives will die a slow, painful death, if not a very quick one, very abruptly, unexpectedly, before their time. If the people who are running those institutions, the conservative Christians, so-called running those institutions, don't learn how to say no when the answer needs to be no, and they don't learn how to follow that up with no means no. Not because I hate you, but because I love what is good. I rejoice in the truth. What you're asking me to say is not true. What you're asking me to permit to be said is slanderous. It dishonors God and it dishonors other people. No, that's not permitted. Free speech cannot become a cover for sin. To wherever you say, ah, I have freedom, right? I have freedom, 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 freedom. I have the right. You don't have the freedom to shout fire in a crowded theater. You don't have freedom to speak untruths, unsubstantiated, harmful claims in a public place with regards to an innocent man. You don't have the freedom to that. You don't have freedom to encourage people to destroy their own country and then act surprised when the proper authorities say, that's enough. You're agitating for violent revolution. No, you can't say that. Public education, teachers, administrators, and activists who help to write the curriculum, they don't have some inalienable God-given right to molest and corrupt and groom children, or to talk unwed mothers who are unexpectedly pregnant into aborting their children. They don't have some God-given right to do that any more than The wicked kings of Judah and Israel had some God-given right. They had the freedom. They had the ability. They didn't have the God-given right to lead the nation into the worship of false gods, into filling the streets of Jerusalem with blood. And part of how we know that they didn't have some God-given right is because we see that God would not pardon their filling the streets of Jerusalem with blood, innocent blood. It would be as nonsensical to say that somebody has a... Absolute right to say whatever pops into their mind, no matter what, to make any kind of outrageous claim, no matter how untrue, how malicious, how disastrous, it would be as ridiculous to make that claim as it would be to say somebody has an absolute right to take violent action. And why I say that is because we understand that violent action, say for instance, when a police officer is trying to protect a would be victim from a would-be criminal or an actively engaged criminal. If a police officer takes violent action to protect the innocent in the upholding of the laws, we put that in a different category than we would the violent criminal himself trying to make victim his neighbor, to take something from him or her that is not the criminal's to take. They have no right to it. You don't say law enforcement or a protective head of household has a right to use physical force up to and including deadly force to neutralize a threat to innocent life and therefore everybody has the right to commit any violent action that pops into their mind any one that occurs to their imagination period and so how can it be that because we want to believe in academic freedom because we want to believe in free speech therefore If you get into a position to where you can raise up or else depose folks who have been teaching untruths, they have been malicious, they have been wrongheaded, oh, you'd better not. Heaven knows that the left and the secularists and the godless are happy to depose conservatives if they say something that the left objects to. They do it all the time. They do it routinely. They do it as a matter of course and they feel no shame in it, how can it then be shameful if a conservative says, actually, because this is what's true, because this is what's good, I'm going to remove your spokespeople. I'm going to remove your professors. I'm going to remove your president and your board. I'm going to remove your false prophets, ultimately. We have to be thinking about these things more carefully than just, will I be regarded as nice? Or will this or that individual say that I'm being unloving? Will they respond well to it? Will they like me? If the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we find ourselves in positions of authority, do you know what we should do with that position of authority? We should do what Paul talks about in Romans 13. Reward those who do what is good. Punish those who do what is evil. That's the role of governing authorities. The God-given role. That's why... Romans 13, that's why Paul says in Romans 13 that the governing authorities are instituted by God in the first place. How will it be if when we have corrupt people in positions of authority and they do the opposite, they reward those who do what is evil, they punish those who do what is good, and we have a chance to change out the leadership, we'll object. Oh no, you can't. You can't flip the script. We're not used to that. I'll get used to destruction then. Because that's where we're headed. You keep on rewarding those who do what is evil and punishing those who do what is evil, you get destruction. All of human history tells us that. All of biblical history tells us that. God tells us that. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. But that's it. That's all the time I've got for this episode. In our next episode, which will be subscriber only until March 1st, subscriber only you know, the people who pay 99 cents a month. That's all I'm asking. They'll get to listen to it right away. They'll get a notification right away. In our next episode, we'll be doing a review of Emperor by Jeffrey Parker. And we'll be talking about a very prominent example of something like this having been attempted or it was purported to have been attempted. That's all I'll say for right now. I'll tease that it was purportedly what I'm talking about. But I don't think that it actually was what I'm talking about. And I'll explain why. But for now, I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.